Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome to the Online Frogcast. I'm Carice Hendrick. And I'm Brett Johnson. And we're both anti-fraud experts. But with very different sets of experiences. <laughs> I've been in the anti-fraud space for over a decade, working with some of the biggest online companies in the world to help them prevent payment fraud. And prior to several years ago, I was a fraudster, committing several different types of fraud online until I ended up on the Secret Service's most wanted list, spent some time in prison, and I've since dedicated my career to helping businesses and consumers protect themselves against the people like I used to be. Why don't we just go ahead and dive right in. Our first segment we call WTF. And what does that stand for? Well, of course it stands for What the Fraud. <laughs> now, I'm going to be talking about what we're seeing on the dark net, some of the current trends that criminals are, are talking about and actually using to commit crime. Carice is going to talk about uh, current trends and issues that merchants are reporting. Let's just go ahead and dive right in. What I've been noticing on the darknet recently are people talking about adding addresses onto credit reports or, or being able to get victims mail and set up new accounts or order replacement cards, things like that. To give you an idea of some of the ways that this is done. So someone buys what's called a FULLS, which is a complete identity profile. That's an F-U-L-L-Z. It consists of name, address, social security number, date of birth, driver's license number, mother's maiden name, background check, and credit report. How much does that cost, you ask? Well, it costs anywhere from $30 up to about $130, depending on the credit score, the gender, the location of the victim. And, and you Brett, can buy do you these. say that it's pretty inexpensive because there's just so many out there? Well, that's the thing. Is I'm, last year, we had over 1,500 breaches. Of those 1,500 breaches, it's estimated that 2.6 billion, that's B with a billion, documents were leaked. So everyone's information is out there. And when I say everyone, I mean everyone. There's no such thing anymore as, well, maybe my information's not been compromised. No, your information is compromised. Um, there's so much of it out there that it's cheap. I mean, if it was just a few documents, yeah, you'd, you'd see these things going for a few hundred dollars. But most of the time, they're sold for $30. Uh, to give you an example, I can pull someone's social security number and date of birth from a website for $2.90. From that point on, I can, if I didn't want to buy a ready-made identity that's being sold on these forums and marketplaces, I could build my own by going to Ben Verified or Spokey or one of these background check companies, which are legal companies, and pull background checks and then use the background check to pull the credit report on someone. Once I've got that information, I can pretty much do whatever type of crime I want to do. 
Is that all manual? So that's like done by a criminal who's doing all this manually. There's not like an automated system to do these in bulk. No, usually not. Most of this is manual. But what the thing that's important to realize is that yes, it's manual, but you've not got just a few people that are doing this. So on um, on the largest criminal website in the world last year it was Alphabay. When it was shut down by the federal government on July 5th, they had 240,000 members. So it doesn't have to be, you know, computerized or turned into a bot to set up these identities and pull these profiles out. It's it's so many people that are committing the crime, it looks like it's an automated attack all of a sudden. Right. Okay. That's No, that's helpful for me. I was just curious. No, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, uh, To give you an idea, though. Because of EMV, we're seeing that people are moving away from using counterfeit cards in a physical environment to more online type orders. One of the other things that they're doing is is that they're, they're using people's information to set up new accounts or order replacement cards on existing accounts. That way they don't have to worry about trying to uh, counterfeit or, or emulate that EMV chip, which is nearly impossible. So how do they do that? Well, there, there's several ways to do that. The first easiest way is that a criminal goes to... Um, the U.S. Postal Service website, and he fills out a change of address form. And he pays for that with a prepaid debit card in the victim's name, and it forwards all the mail to a drop address that the criminal uses. And a drop address is basically an empty house, an empty apartment, a mail reshipper, something like that. Why does he do it? Well, because he can order replacement cards and have those cards forwarded to the drop address that he controls. That's the easiest way right now that criminals take your mail, other than stealing it directly out of your mailbox, which that happens as well. To actually add addresses onto the credit report, how easy is it? It's as easy as actually just applying for credit. So I can just get a credit application, I can apply for credit, and in about a month and a half, two months later, that address will show up on the victim's credit report. Once that address is on there, what can I do? Really anything I want to do. I can I can set up new accounts. I can order replacement cards for existing accounts that are on the person's credit report. That's one way to do it. One of the ways that I saw uh, recently, a guy was talking about how easy it was. And the only thing he's doing is he's going out and getting a drop address. So he tours around a neighborhood. He finds an empty house or an apartment that he thinks he can use. And what does he do? He orders phone service to that empty house in the victim's name. Now, why does he do that? He does it. Because as soon as he orders that service, it adds that address onto the victim's credit report. Not only that, but it also gives the fraudster access to a phone number that's registered in the victim's name. Now, he doesn't have to be inside the house to get access to that phone number. The only thing he's he's doing is he's forwarding the phone number onto a phone that he controls. So that's one of the ways they're doing it. They're also doing account takeovers with low-level accounts. So what will happen is is you'll have uh, someone will pull the credit report and they'll find a utility that's on the credit report, and then they'll call the utility and they'll say, hey, I'm just looking to update billing information. And the thing is, is how hard is that? It's not because no one expects someone to ATO a utility. What purpose would there be in that? And the purpose in that is the only thing that they're doing is they're adding that alternate address onto the credit report. And why do they do it? To set up new accounts, to order replacement cards. Once that's done, I mean, it's over. I mean, you're talking about new accounts. You can charge, uh, Chase has a credit card right now that's being hit pretty hard. That particular credit card is issued with about $15,000 of available credit on it. So automatically the fraudster is making X amount of dollars just by changing an address, ordering that one card. You know this, but my husband actually got hit by this exact fraud a few months ago. And they 
opened a retailer private label card in his name and with a pretty high limit and just went crazy. And, you know, he didn't really find out about it for a while. And I think that that's good. I think the other things, you know, that are good to know is it's good for the banks to be aware of this as well as merchants because you're going to start seeing phone number verified and address verified either through AVS or through companies that use public records. The utilities, you know, are going to be a public record. And so it will be with the verification services that you use. It, it might look legit. So this is very important to know about that it's happening. What would you say people could do to try to really honestly, the credit monitoring companies are the only ones that can probably prevent this specific thing from happening. But what would you say banks should be looking for or merchants should be looking for to know if this has happened to somebody who's trying to make a purchase on their site? Sure. So, so or get a new card at their bank. <laughs> right. So, so the important thing here to understand is exactly like you said. It's from a consumer point of view, it takes paying attention and monitoring your accounts. Now, if if you don't have the time to do that, that means a credit monitoring service. But looking at the banks, creditors, things like that, you need to be aware that okay, how long has that new address been on file? Has it been on file just about a month? And at that point, they're setting up new accounts, ordering replacement cards. It becomes really important to understand the length of time that a new address has been added on. Because you're exactly right. It comes down to the point of, well, the address is on the credit report. Not only is the address on there, but the phone is also registered in the name of the victim as well. So that becomes a huge problem all of a sudden. What banks are tending to do right now, and creditors overall, is they're just going by, okay, is it on file? And if it's on file, they'll go ahead and they'll send the replacement card out or they'll set up a new account for someone. So you have to be extremely aware of what these fraudsters are doing and, and even understand why they're doing it. It's, it's a direct response to the chip integration on credit cards and debit cards. So fraudsters can no longer walk in with a counterfeit credit card and get a bunch of goods. So what do they do? They look for another easy avenue to make money, and that's simply stealing someone's identity, ordering cards, or setting up new accounts to new addresses. And it, that becomes extremely easy at that point. Well, and prior to EMV being in effect in the U.S., over 50% of credit card fraud was fraudulent cards and counterfeit cards in person. So I think it's really easy for CMP merchants to think that that was a small percentage. But those are statistics that I learned from MasterCard, an event that I attended by them. And we're really seeing a huge switch. And I can say that all merchants, I mean, even small ones that I would never think would be hit by fraud are just getting creamed and seeing their fraud attempts as well as successful fraud going up quite a bit in the last two years. The other thing I just add on this before we wrap up this segment is that by credit card rules, if you're a CMP merchant, technically you wouldn't be affected by this type of fraud because it would land on the banks for issuing credit to these people and uh, reissuing cards. However, a lot of this stuff slips through. A lot of it, the bank doesn't identify it as their mistake. They just get the fraud claim from the cardholder and pass it on to the merchant. So it's important to be aware of it from that. I've also known of a few merchants recently that have contacted me who have been receiving retrieval requests on transactions that are pretty old. And without getting too far into details, chargebacks can only be filed up to 120 days from the first purchase. But if you file a retrieval request, you can file that within a year's time from the original purchase. And if the merchant doesn't respond to it, that's an automatic chargeback and debit of funds. Oh, and 
I'm seeing some issuers using this process to try to regain money that's being lost by either synthetic fraud or identity fraud. And when we look into it, the merchant didn't do anything wrong, but the bank issued credit to the wrong person. And so they're trying to game the system a little bit. And I'm certainly not trying to throw all issuers under the bus, but some of those bigger ones have learned how to game the system. So if you're receiving retrieval requests, it's extremely important to respond with the information that's needed, which is usually just details of the transaction, what was purchased, where it was shipped, the billing address. I mean, usually it's just a screenshot or printout from your system internally, like your CRM. And provide it to the bank within the time frame. Otherwise, you're losing that chargeback. And it doesn't matter if it was their fault or not because now they're saying, oh, well, we filed a retrieval request and you didn't respond. So the context of what actually happened with fraud doesn't really matter. I can attest to that as well. I, I consult with several merchants and I've seen uh, a few of those have that exact same problem that certainly the, the fraud is not the merchant's fault. It's because of especially synthetic fraud. Right. The bank is trying to recoup some of the money and understand why they're trying to recoup it. Uh, synthetic fraud accounts for 80% of all new account fraud. Last year's losses, uh, well, 2016's losses were were over $16 billion. Synthetic fraud now accounts, they're, they're saying it accounts for 20%, 20% of all charge-offs. Wow. So it's a huge amount of money. And we'll definitely be diving into synthetic fraud more on um, an upcoming episode. And uh, it's something that Brett knows a ton about. And it is something that because banks aren't they don't have the ability to catch it at the beginning. They don't have a lot of ability to catch it after it's been reported either or identified as a charge-off or um, identified as fraud. And so they're just trained to pass everything on to the merchants. So it's important to be aware of. Um, there's not a ton of recourse that merchants have, but but definitely in responding to those chargebacks in a smart way and providing all the information that you have for the specific reason code is, is the best way to try to recover funds through chargeback process that way. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> so this is supposed to be a short segment, but I hope it was very informative for everyone. And I think it's important to mix current topics of what's what Brett's seeing right now with kind of evergreen things that that we you know want to talk about as well. I guess for me, just wrapping up the what the fraud segment for what merchants are reporting, I mean it really depends on the vertical and the merchant of of what they're seeing. I've had interestingly enough, I've had a few companies that have never there are established and that have been around a long time and that are big that I wouldn't think would be victims of card testing contacting me recently about that, like luxury good marketplaces and things like that. I mean, I, I used to think that card testing mostly applied to low dollar transactions, digital gaming, things that, you know, aren't super high cost. Usually it's under $20. And really, I mean, Brett can talk about this more than I can, but card testing is occurring because typically it's the person who bought the card needs to verify that the card is still valid before they're selling it to someone else. And so their way of verifying it is by a low dollar transaction on a website. I know that the DVD company that's outside of the 7-Eleven near your house gets hit quite a bit with that when there's physical cards at play. But online cards, you know, a lot of the streaming services got hit a few years ago, and I think they've gotten really good at it. So now more established retailers are, are seeing this, even physical goods retailers, anyone with subscriptions, you know, anything with a digital membership, because they don't want goods shipped to them. They just need to quickly see if the card's going to authorize or not. No, so that's that correct. 
top of my head is something that I've been asked about this week, but definitely it varies by vertical and just, you know, what's the pain point of the moment? <laughs> You're right. And just to, just to add on to that, talking about testing cards, the types of fraudsters who test cards. So, so you need to understand that what's going on there. If, if a fraudster, if let's say a carter, because that's what they're called on, on forums. So someone who's using credit card information to order items, they're called carters. That person who buys, if he has a seller, someone who's actually selling the card data to him that he trusts, meaning that uh, the seller tends to provide cards that are always active, that can always be charged for a minimum of, say, $300, okay? The chances of him verifying that card, of running a test on that type of card, are pretty low because he knows the seller tends to provide cards that are, you know, 98% live at, at all times. And even the sellers will advertise them of that. This new database that I've stolen has live cards of 99%. So most of the time, those cards won't be tested. It's the carters and the fraudsters who are buying product who are not trusting the the seller. They, they're buying the cards from a seller and they really aren't sure if the cards are good or not. And those will be tested. Now, Carice is exactly right. Subscription services, whether it be music subscriptions, something like that. One of the things that you see a lot of people talk about is they will verify the card. Now, you can automate that verification, but if you're not wanting to, to automate it, what a lot of people are doing is they're picking up the phone and they're calling phone sex numbers. And they'll input, <laughs> they'll, they'll input the, the card information in there and it'll verify, and before it'll charge, they'll hang up. That way it tells them that the card is alive. You see all kinds of stuff like that going on right now. I didn't know that was still a thing. Are they? Do oh, they yeah. still start with one nine hundred? It, it's uh, I don't know what the numbers are, and if I did know, I wouldn't say it because I'm married. <laughs> <laughs> Good man. <laughs> 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 it it never never ceases to amaze me the interesting things that they do and i just i mean it's honestly fascinating to me and as someone who studied sociology in college like i really fascinates me all the different things that people find to work around the system and, and think of oh yeah there's all kinds of stuff from. i mean you, i've seen <laughs> um, my wife got her car stolen last week and oh, the uh, the test charges that went through were through one of these music subscription services so that went through, I've read people that are doing, uh, you know, the food delivery, like, uh, I don't even know the name of them now, but, uh, you know, you've got Uber Eats, you've got a few other ones as well. Uh, mm. Uber's actually pretty good about things, but these other smaller ones, I mean, that's, that's a way to test a car to see if it's legitimate or not. See if oh, it's and get free food. And get free um, food while you're at it. Yeah. Well, which I, I know from the companies that attended CMP last year, as well as a few of the companies that I've worked with in my consulting practice that quick service restaurants are, are really getting hit, especially since they've never really had CMP transactions before. And now they have mobile apps and delivery services and, you know, gift cards and all of that. And it's just, it's a whole new vertical that hasn't ever had to deal with this. And I, I feel like this is a really bad welcome to them, <laughs> to the CMP world by getting hit by fraud, but it's, you know, important. And I'm very grateful that I get to help them in trying to prevent it. And you're, you are, you're doing a great job. And that, but you see, that's the thing is, is companies now, these, these smaller merchants like that, they're, or, or ones that have the quick service like that, they're now understanding, well, fraud's a problem. But the problem was, is that, you know, I was carting back over a decade ago. <laughs> and even then people were carting or stealing food using credit card information. 
either by yeah. uh, ordering food to, to a drop address or ordering pizzas or or anything else. If they had, well, didn't food, you tell you, me that you had once a freezer full of crab legs, or was that somebody else? That no, no, it was you? me. I had. Uh, I was talking <laughs> to this guy, and I had never carted food before. And uh, he was like, I was on ICQ with him, a messaging service. And he said, man, I've got a freezer full of crab legs. And I'm like, what? And he's like, man, food is the easiest thing to card. And I'm like, really? So I took his advice and I, I had this deep freezer. I ended up with a deep freezer full of crab legs and filet mignon. So uh, nothing to be proud of, but that just illustrates that uh, mm -hmm. if a company can make money off a product or service, it's it has a benefit for a fraudster to try to make money or steal that same product or service, and either to resell or to use themselves, right? Like why why pay for food if you can get it for free? Essentially, right. So you know you're talking about crab legs. Some of them are you know eighty dollars a pound, depending on the crab. So instead of a fraudster buying it, he steals it. Well, and I remember when I first started working with the trade association, there was a one of the very first food delivery services was a member. And I just thought that was so weird. I was like, who would steal steak or who would steal, <laughs> you know, seafood? And then I I mean, obviously now it's just commonplace. And, and we had probably eight or nine of the biggest uh, restaurant chains attend CMP last year, not just quick service, but some of the big restaurant chains as well. And it, it's exactly this. And I think it's important to know that card testing might be an issue as a as is the other fraud types that we'll we'll get into down the line. So <laughs> that was a very long segment, but I hope it was interesting <laughs> to people. Right, I wanted you to talk this episode on the life cycle of a fraudster. And I think this is a really good setup for it, right? Because some of what we were just talking about fits into that life cycle. I don't know if the term life cycle is the best term. That's kind of what I've come up with. But it's essentially, I mean, because I guess life cycle kind of assumes that, you know, there's an end at some point. But right. I don't want to wish that on anyone. But um, <laughs> it's more it's more just, you know, the progression maybe is a, is a better term of, of how they get started and, and what they start carding. I think we're specifically talking about carding primarily on this, right? right? But I, they probably leads to account takeover and synthetic and ID and everything else too. No, you're right. And, uh, you know, I, what I'll do is I'll, I'll give an example of the way that life cycle used to work compared to how it works today. That way people can kind of understand the, uh, the, the increase in numbers of fraudsters. You know, when I, when I ran Shadow Crew, we ended with 4,000 people. When Alpha Bay ended last year, they had 240,000 people. And this change in life cycle kind of almost explains that to a degree. Now, there's other factors that take place as well, but the way the life cycle has changed also tends to be a factor. I guess I'll just go ahead and start in on it. To give you an idea, it used to be if you were a beginning cyber criminal, that the first thing you would do is you would, you would find one of these forums and you'd become a member and you'd tool around a little bit, read posts and try to get information and everything. And then sooner or later, you would buy credit card information. As soon as you bought credit card information, and I'm going to use the website names because everyone does it. As soon as you bought that credit card information, the first website that you would try to steal from would be Apple. Bar none, it was always Apple. Because Apple items are extremely popular, they sell quickly at 80% of whatever the retail cost is. So people would try to cart Apple, and they would fail miserably. Why? Because Apple has outstanding security. So they would fail miserably, and they would usually... Some of them would stop their carding career right then and they'd go home and try to get a job or all this other stuff. But a lot of them would stick around. And what would happen from there? Well, what would happen from there is 
they would get some sense about them. And by that, I mean they would realize that it was almost impossible for a new guy to go into that type of environment and steal laptops or electronics because that's where all the security is. So they would start by carting food like, like we were just talking about. They would card pizza. They would card crab legs, steaks, things like that because that was where the least amount of security was. No one expects people to steal food using stolen credit card information. So they would start doing that. Then they'd move up to clothing. Why clothing? Because you could hit a store and take the, the items back and get a gift card with it or trade it out for cash or something like that. So clothing was next because that was, at the at that moment in time, that was, again, a very low security item. And then as you increased, you'd maybe go over into virtual goods, uh, gift cards, game keys, software keys, things like that. And then you'd graduate, as time went on, you'd graduate to being able to card Apple, depending on the time of year and, and several different factors or, or different types of electronics websites. That tended to be the, the life cycle of a carter, and that's the way most cyber criminals started out. Now, once you learn that, it's weird because as you become more experienced as a carter, you learn the different dynamics of, of several different, different crimes. So what I mean by is, so you start by carting pizza or food. Well, that teaches you how to use a credit card online. And by that, I mean the proxies, uh, whether it be an RDP or a remote desktop or a SOX 5 proxy that puts you within distance of the actual card owner. So that what will happen is, is you can go and you can buy a proxy for as low as 45 cents. You can put it in your browser and it makes it look like instead of you ordering an item from New York, it makes it look like you're in the same area as the actual card holder. Say the card holders in Alabama. So you can be within 25 miles of the actual address of the card holder, which makes things look very legitimate. Companies tend to smile up at that and the orders tend to go through that teaches them to do to begin with is how to use proxies, how to place the order properly. Now they move up to carting physical items, whether it be clothing or coolers or, or laptops or anything else like that. And what does that teach them? That teaches them how to use an address, how to set up what's called a drop address. So when you're setting up a drop address, you need a, an address that doesn't look like it's abandoned, but it needs to be empty. It needs to be something that you're able to see all the areas of, of entry and, and exit of that area so that if the cops are waiting, you know what to look for. Uh, so you learn how to use a drop address. And once you do that, then you start looking at higher priced items like laptops. Well, sometimes a laptop requires a carter to do an ATO, an account takeover. So he'll learn how, how to do that, how to use the phone, how to uh, pretend to be another person, how to pull or buy a complete identity profile or fools, things like that. The point is, is that when you begin cybercrime, one type of crime gives you the tools to build into another type of crime. So uh, that Carter, so he's doing ATOs. Well, that ATO may turn over into some sort of payment processor fraud. So you see a lot of these uh, small merchants use payment processors. Well, Carters love to do that because they don't have to go outside of the house. They can set up bank accounts, any number of things like that, and cash out like that. Um, now, that used to be the way that things were done. And because of that, the numbers weren't very high. A lot of people would, would get frustrated because it took a long time before you started making money, before you were able to actually put some money in your pocket. You had to learn all these dynamics to begin with. Nowadays, it doesn't work like that. Nowadays, you've got, and, and Carice will tell you, I hate the term friendly fraud, but you've got <laughs> friendly fraud now. So now a, card, a, a criminal entering into the environment 
he immediately starts with friendly fraud, which is basically refunding different websites. So he'll order an item, he'll claim the item didn't show up or that the battery leaked all over everything or that it was broken or whatever. And he'll get a refund from the company. That way it gives him his money back and it gives him the expensive item to resell as well. To give you an idea, there are people that constantly that they come in and they immediately start making profiting $10,000 a month doing nothing but refunding. And what does that mean? Well, that means that they're immediately entering the, the environment, they're making money, and while they're making money, they're learning how to properly do credit card fraud or account takeovers, payment processor fraud, synthetic fraud, any number of different types of crimes that usually would take them a long time and they would be broke the entire time they were learning it. Now they're not. Now they're making money, and while they're making money, they're learning how to successfully commit these other types of crimes. Well, and I think that what was, I, I have several thoughts on that, but one thing that really surprised me was that fraudsters are partaking in friendly fraud because I think my perspective was always friendly fraud was when the cardholder is involved in the situation and it's a legitimate person who's not necessarily intentionally trying to commit fraud, but they're, maybe they are, but it's not exact, it's maybe the gateway fraud, but it's not fraud, fraud. I was always seeing it as like a legitimate customer, not involved in the dark web, not, you know, doing all that, not trying to make a profit. It was just like, I'd like a free TV and I'm going to claim that it didn't come to my house or um, things like that. And something that I've learned from you is these guys are wicked smart at testing thresholds and they'll post, you know, at this electronics website, if you make a claim for under $500, they'll just refund you your money and you get to keep the item. Absolutely. Um, they're constantly testing those thresholds, not just on refund fraud, but also on fraud rules and carding. But that was new information to me um, when you shared this. And also, I guess, how do people learn about or what makes somebody want to commit fraud and what makes them decide what which company to defraud? I think I'm kind of ask you a leading question about the nature of the dark web and just how helpful they are to each other, but also, you know, how, how does someone pick what company they want to defraud first or, sure. or give so, a try? So how do they pick what targets to hit? The, the first indicator is what's popular among consumers. All right. So as I pointed out earlier, Apple products. To this day, Apple products are the number one item for fraudsters to get. They love them. Now, that doesn't mean that a fraudster will make a lot of money on Apple because Apple has, like I said, very good security. So what what they look for is they look for an item or a service that is very popular that will resell quickly for a high dollar amount or as much money as they can possibly get. Something that's easy as well. Now, where does that where does that information come from? So what what tends to happen is on these darknet forums, or they don't even have to be darknet. Some of these forums are on the surface web itself, so you can find them using Google. Uh, one of the better ones right now is called Hidden Hand, and it's an illegal website. And it's it's not on the Tor browser. It's not on the dark web. It's on the actual just surface web that you can Google the website. Now, what happens is, is people come to that forum or that website, and the reason they come to it is they they have a hankering to commit fraud. They're, they're wanting to find out how to do this, this, this stuff. And they may have read a newspaper article or seen something on TV about all the money that is, that is being stolen by fraudsters. And they're thinking to themselves, Oh, you know, I can do that. So they come there thinking that they're going to make or be able to steal all this money. Now, what a forum exists for are two reasons. A forum exists in order for sellers to be able to ply their wares. So a seller comes on there and he has an item. Now what happens is 
he has to be able to to sell that item and people have to be able to trust that his item is legitimate as far as a fraud related item goes that he's actually providing real credit card numbers or real bank accounts and that they're good numbers they have high balances things like that so a forum works for that seller to be able to establish trust with potential buyers so you'll have reviews you have word of mouth you he'll have he'll give out samples to people things like that for the criminal for the for the actual fraudster that's looking to use those items what that forum does is it also establishes trust for that person. So he knows by reading the forum and reading the reviews and everything else that this particular seller of credit card information or bank accounts or what have you delivers a very good product that he can use. It also trains him on how to use that. So there are tutorials there that uh, fraudster can, can buy for as low as $50 that will walk him through step-by-step on how to commit a specific type of crime. If he doesn't well, you've actually posted a PDF or screenshots of a PDF that's super fascinating that's just like this that you purchased that trains people how to commit fraud. And it, it's interesting. It's on your website and it's fascinating. Yeah. So as you I can was buy basically live texting you as I was reading it. <laughs> <laughs> so you can buy the tutorial like that. You can, if you don't want to do the tutorial, if you think that you need someone to guide you through it, there are people there who will, for $600, they will teach a six-week class that will walk you through step-by-step, hand-in-hand, of how to commit a specific type of fraud. And what he does is he the, the, the teachers of these frauds, they even guarantee their service, saying that, you know, if you don't make money, I will give you your money back. I will refund that $600 that you paid me. That's how confident they are of these crimes that are being committed. So you've got that going on. Now, the the other interesting thing about these forums is what you find out is that a lot of criminals, there are three things that have to take place in order to successfully commit crime or cybercrime. You have to be able to gather data. You have to be able to commit the crime. And you have to be able to cash out the crime. So you have to be able to launder the money at the end. Criminals are not good at all three things. They're good at one thing, maybe two. So what happens is with these forums, it, it allows one criminal to network with another criminal and they put everything together so everything's successful in the end. So you may have a guy that knows how to defraud a bank. He, he knows a, a specific type of exploit for a bank. He will get on there and he will look for someone that knows how to commit the crime, who knows, who knows how to use that exploit for maximum potential. So he'll get up with him and he'll network with him. Then from there, they'll find people who can actually cash out from ATMs. So you've got you've got an entire group of people that come together and work for maximum success. For information or stores that are being being shared, what happens is is someone finds that exploit. He will share it within his own community. So you've got the forum of say 200,000 people. He may have a group of friends in there of 40 people. He will share that exploit with them. They in turn will share whatever exploits they've got with him. So you've got that going on. Then sooner or later, that information gets out within the entire community. So everyone has that same exploit and how to take advantage of it after a while. And it's that that strength of sharing information that makes cybercrime, and especially organized cybercrime, such a dangerous thing these days. Well, and this is where I'm going to try really hard not to get on my soapbox, but this is, <laughs> this is why I, mean, I was already passionate about this, but learning how much the bad guys network with each other and share information with each other and talk. I mean, they're literally saying, Hey, don't, you know, if you want to buy gift cards from this company, then it has to be in $20 thresholds because their fraud system picks up 25 or billing and shipping has to match or IP. I mean, they are testing you all the time and they're sharing that information. And that is why it is so important to me. And I've dedicated six years of my career to it 
to getting merchants together to share information. And Brett, when one of the first conversations that we had together after I had put him through the ringer for a few months, you know, once we started to kind of let our guard guards a little bit, he said, I just don't understand why there aren't forums for merchants to share as much information as the bad guys are. And I had to explain to him, look, we have privacy policies. We have, you know, all these different things that work against us in a lot of ways um, where we can't share specific information. But I am very passionate about sharing best practices and strategies and what works and what doesn't work and getting people together in the same vertical because most, you know, online gaming companies are fighting the same bad guys as their as their um, competitor. And while companies may be competitors in every other market, they should be allies when it comes to fraud prevention because what you're missing your competitor might, you know, have have a stronghold on and know how to catch it or what rules to put in and vice versa. So it's very important to work together. I have introduced some of the largest companies to their competitors and they now have weekly or um, monthly calls with each other. And in the ticketing space, in the travel space, in the retail space, it's just super important. And that's also why I work so hard on this annual conference coming up in May for CMP Expo, as well as um, on articles to share best practices. I often am kind of a contact for merchants when they have a question that they don't really know the answer to and don't know who to ask. And I continually offer it, I mean, as a service just for free because I believe in it in connecting them with people who do know, who have a strategy against account takeover or who have a similar business model or something like that because I do have a pretty significant Rolodex and I think that it's important to um, use that for good. I think that without getting super fired up about it, I just think it's super important that we share information with each other. And in those in-person forums, you can be a little bit more, you know, less with your guard up. And people just want to help each other. They're not trying to, you know, hurt you or out you or anything else like that. You won't see it on you know, the Wall Street Journal or something. What I will say is I constantly am telling people that, you know, while specifics are Help. A lot of people say, well, we want to share negative lists. And I guess what I would say to that is that changes all the time. Brett can tell you that. The dropship address that they use, the IP address oh, they yeah. use, that stuff changes. What doesn't change is their methodology and the way that they're attacking you. That's not going to change until you change something. Because they are, I mean, I, I don't want to say that you know, what Brett did in his past life isn't significant, but they're always looking for the path of least resistance. They're looking for, you know, what's the easiest and they're creatures of habit. So once they find a exploit, they're just going to exploit the heck out of it, but they're not going to get creative until you do something to stop it. So it's important to talk to other people and find out how they stopped that specific thing and um, put that in place. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, a fraudster, if he is doing something that, that is successful, there is absolutely no reason for him to change anything about it until you make him change it. Okay. Right. Uh, and the thing is, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right about the sharing of information. Um, I, I don't think that merchants and companies, they really understand exactly how much information is shared among, amongst fraudsters. All right. It's, it's not one of these things of, Oh, well, they won't share this information because it'll, it'll interrupt their income flow. The reason they share information is because it increases their income flow. All right. Yes, they're giving away an exploit that maybe they only know about, but in return, they're getting all these other exploits from other people so they can maximize profit over time. Merchants, and I've worked with companies that, that have said, you know, if I can just stop fraud on my side, that's all I'm worried about. 
And it's, it's that type of attitude that really causes a lot of damage that, you know, I'm only worried about me. The problem is that fraud expands, spans everyone. It hits every single merchant. And if you'll just start sharing information and talking about the types of fraud that you're seeing, then other companies, they will do that with you as well. And all together, <laughs> hopefully you'll hold hand in hand and fraud will decrease over time. Well, and I've seen it happen. I mean, I just think it's magic when I get, you know, merchant only sessions together and facilitate them. And you were a part of one last year and, right. you know, they really feel safe in asking each other questions and getting really great answers from their peers. What one company knows really well, they may not know another area and you can help them out. And honestly, turning what you just said on its head, you know, about the reason that these bad guys or fraudsters or carters or whoever we want to call them are sharing information is that eventually it increases their income flow in the long run. I would say that the reason why merchants should be sharing information is because eventually it will decrease your revenue losses exactly. in the long run. Exactly. And it's something I'm, I just, I'm nerdily passionate about it and I try to help in any way I can. And I can say that I'm working on an initiative with CMP to help the flow of information among merchants year round. And uh, it's something that I've been working on for a while and hopefully we'll be able to talk about it more at a later date. Even though this podcast isn't, you know, sponsored by CMP or anything, it is part of my life and it is something that I'm passionate about because it's a platform that allows me to help impact the industry and get people together. And so that's why I talk about it. <laughs> now, Garis, you, you had mentioned to me something about the five stages of <laughs> fraud. Well, it's a theory that I came across. I mean, I, I am not a professional psychiatrist or sociologist at all, but it's something I kind of thought of because I have worked with hundreds of merchants. I've really seen different attitudes towards fraud from companies and it's kind of a, a cycle as well. So as we were talking about the life cycle of a fraudster, I kind of started thinking about remembering this five stages of fraud that I came up with for an article for CMP, uh, card.present.com, actually the publication, I think it was September, 2016. Cause I looked up the article yesterday, mm -hmm. but really it's kind of just observations of the attitude that companies have towards fraud when they first start, experiencing it. And I see it a lot, especially at conferences and in consulting with companies that are new, recently realizing that they were hit with fraud. I will, that's the caveat because I would say that the big companies, um, and you've, you've named a few of them that I've worked with closely, they don't really feel these ways now. It's, they very much accept it and just deal with it because they know that they're targets. And, you know, I do have to say that I'm glad that you mentioned that Apple's gotten really good at Fighting Fraud. It's a company I've worked with in the past. And you know, we really on this podcast are making a concerted effort not to call anyone out right. um, and name dropping companies in a negative way. But I think that it's okay that you did it in the right way this time because you're, you know, referencing something that's in the past and that was pretty well known. And you're also celebrating their success. And I would say that part of that success was because they they have worked with other companies to find out what works with you know their competitors, but also they really took it seriously and um, it was a huge hit to their revenue as well as to their brand because it cheapens the brand when items are for sale for a cheaper price on these secondhand markets. And sometimes customers don't get them or they're counterfeit or, you know, the, there isn't money on the gift card or things like that. And so there are other reasons to fight fraud than just financially, but just a quick, you know, it's a total side note, but you'll notice that we 
go to great lengths not to name drop. And that's just because we want to be respectful of CMP merchants that we work with. We don't want to call anyone out because everyone's on a different journey. And some people have, you know, I've also, there's a lot of companies and you and I talked about two of them earlier before we started recording that I know have been good at fighting fraud in the past, but now they're getting hit again. And so it's just, it's a cyclical journey. And we don't want to call anyone out for where they are now, like if they're getting hit. That said, if we reference a vertical and you wonder if you're being targeted or talked about on the dark web, it's definitely something that you can reach out to us about. And it's a service that Brett offers with his consultancy as well for Aww. dark web mon- monitoring. Well, I mean, it's true. I think it's important to plug that, that you do offer dark web monitoring and um, fraud penetration testing for merchants if they want to see, you know, where they have vulnerabilities in fraud. You know, that's the reason why we started this podcast was to support each other's businesses as well as provide information to the industry. So total side note from the five stages of fraud, but just wanted to throw that out there before I got further on it. So essentially, we've all heard of the five stages of grief, right? Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. What I've witnessed when I work with a company who is new to fraud and realizing that they have it is that they kind of go through the same thing. And any merchant who's been to an industry conference or who has been working at the merchant level when a company first gets knowledge that they're being hit by fraud can probably relate to this. So on a high level, You start with denial. Our company would never get hit with fraud. Or sometimes I hear, well, we don't really have, we don't have fraud, but we do have chargebacks and we're, we're getting a lot of them, but, but it's not fraud. I remember when I first started working with a company and this is several years ago, the CFO informed me that no one would ever be ballsy enough to commit fraud on their website. And I thought, oh, wow, maybe maybe they came up with something. And the way she said it so confidently, I thought, wow, maybe they came up with something that I haven't thought of before to deter fraud. And she said, because my husband is a member of our police department here and he's a detective. So no one would ever commit fraud. And I said, well, do people know that? Is that posted on your website? Well, no. Um, is, is your husband doing anything about these cases? Is he investigating them and prosecuting? Well, no. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) I I have so many stories about just the denial that that happens. And I think it's a natural human reaction, right? You don't want to ever be taken advantage of or feel like your company's being taken advantage of or that you're not doing enough to prevent something bad from happening on your website. So Totally natural, but common. The second step that I am very familiar with is anger. Generally speaking, and I, you know, most of my experience is working with card not present companies. So I would say that generally speaking, the anger is towards card brands that the rules aren't fair. Because as you know, probably because I told you, I doubt you knew this when you were committing fraud, but when the card is not present in a transaction, it's the merchant's liability for fraud. So if I were to steal a credit card and use it in person and swipe it, then the bank pays that cardholder back. But if I'm to use it online, then that online company is responsible for it. And when you're that online company, you don't feel like that's fair. And I would say that it's a general feeling of probably all CMP merchants at some level that like these rules aren't super fair. Because how can I tell that you're Brett Johnson or that you're male or female or anything over the, over the computer? Now, 
that said, there's so much more technology online to verify people now that I actually understand it better than when these rules first went into place. But I mean, essentially, my theory about these rules is that they were first put in place for mail order and telephone orders. And when the internet came into place, they just shoved it there and, and the banks certainly aren't in a hurry to change the liability rules. And so, you know, I just, I, I don't know how many conversations I've had to have to talk merchants off the ledge or who want to yell and scream at the card brands and tell them it's not fair. And I, I've been in those meetings with card brands and I mean, it's not these guys' fault. You know, I, I try really hard to facilitate meetings when I'm in charge of facilitating them to kind of set the pitch port down. It's not productive, but it happens. And so, you know, people just get really angry that the rules aren't fair. Next is kind of is bargaining and depression. So when I think of bargaining in this case, when a company first experiences fraud, it's really, you know, you don't, they kind of occur at the same time, bargaining and, and the depression role. And it's, you know, you're being victimized by criminals and you're realizing that your company is solely responsible. And that can really create a sense of hopelessness and loss of control, feeling like you don't have control over your business. I think that companies go into it with a very set mindset of who their customer is. And I dealt with this quite a bit in one of the merchants I worked with. Um, the executive team really had a clear image of who they thought our customer was, but it very much differed with who I saw our customer being. Um, and I think that the truth was somewhere in the middle, right? Because I saw the 5% of orders that came through manual review that my team looked at and they were looking at who they wanted to market to, not necessarily who was going to sell. So I think that when companies have a very clear mindset of it is a female in her late 30s with six-figure income and no children in dependence, you know, they have this mindset because they have to have that to who to market to and all that. They aren't really thinking that, oh, maybe people who want to resell this on a marketplace are also going to be a customer and maybe they're going to really like that marketing campaign too. So kind of coming to terms with, oh, okay, so that's not really our, our customer and, and figuring that out. I think that sometimes merchants then feel like they have like an inability to commit to action. Like they don't, it's an analysis paralysis, which you've never had to work in the corporate world, Brett. So you probably <laughs> haven't heard that phrase over and over and over and over again. But most people listening probably have analysis paralysis, meaning, you know, you're just paralyzed by so much analysis and not sure which move to make or feeling like there's not any way that you can stop it. That's super common, especially with a lot of the companies I work with in my consultancy. And what I like to tell them is like there there are things to do. And I think taking the emotion out and not taking it personally is actually the first step. And then committing to action. There are always ways for every oh, I was just gonna start quoting for every action, there's an equal <laughs> reaction. But, but it's true. For everything that is being done to victimize your company, there is something that can be done to change that behavior and to limit your losses and at least prevent it. And you prevent it enough and they just start going away because they're not going to waste their time. They're not going to waste those cards that they spent money on or those fulls that they work so hard to create an identity with on a company that they know that they can't easily defraud. Right. So there are, I think my message is like, there are things that you can do and not to be paralyzed too much with just thinking like, oh my gosh, there's nothing we can do. And I think educating yourself on what solutions are out there, what process changes you can make, how you can educate your team and, and learn from each other is definitely the first steps that should be made. And then 
Finally, the fifth step of fraud that I've observed in working with so many merchants is kind of this level of acceptance. You can always tell in a conference when there's kind of veterans, we're all kind of jaded. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, we love this stuff and we talk to each other and we you know, love to dive into what are you seeing and what are you doing and how are you doing it and all that. But we're kind of just jaded to the fact that we're not super pumped on we're going to stop all the fraud. I wrote another article a few years ago about how a lot of merchants new to fighting fraud look at it as fighting a dragon. It's one event that you're fighting and there's predictable tools and you leave your village and you fight this dragon and you slay it and then you come back to your village and you're celebrated and another dragon probably isn't going to impact your village. But really, merchants need to be seeing fighting fraud as fighting zombies. I'm not calling you a zombie. or And North they just Asian. keep coming. Uh, I know, I know. Um, <laughs> but they keep regenerating, right? You fight them with a baseball bat, they regenerate to withstand a baseball bat and, and go a totally different direction. And they keep coming back. So you might fight off the first hundred, but another hundred come back. And there's no time to go back to your village to be celebrated because you're always fighting. And I think that acceptance, maybe don't be as jaded as someone that's been in it for 13 years, but accepting that your company's always going to have fraud, that you need to have someone in charge who's monitoring this, that's aware of stuff that's going to come up. So, okay, if we plug this hole, this is the hole that we should probably think of. Or if we add this business model, this is the kind of fraud we should expect. Having someone in control and then having analysts who are doing any kind of manual review that you might do, having a layer of fraud protection, and those layers are um, specific to the type of company you are and your business model and software implementation and all of that. But those are all things that can help you have a level of acceptance of, you know what, we're going to have fraud, but we're going to be as manned up as possible and have the best layer of tools to fight what we're going to see and deter them. So that's, you know, the flip side of the life cycle of a fraudster is really the life cycle of a fraud prevention team. And that's really, I would say, the first year. And then every other year after that, it's just building on that acceptance and prevention strategies to really handle whatever comes your way. Because even the best fraud teams I've worked with that are just robust and really on top of it are always getting hit with something new. You know, it's really cat and mouse, Tom and Jerry, I don't know, whatever other analogy you want to use. <laughs> right, right. Well, let, let me ask you, Carice, is it, is it ever, um, I mean, how common is it that merchants or a company just, they're so hit with fraud that they just kind of throw their hands up in the air and say, you know, I give up. You mean give up like close up shop or give up and just let it all come through? Just let it all happen. I don't think they'd close up shop. I, I don't guess, but. Uh, oh, I've, I've seen several companies actually go out of business because fraud's so bad. Wow. Not just from, you know, a loss of revenue standpoint, but Visa and MasterCard have rules in place to try to help merchants to take responsibility for fraud fighting. So if you have more than, the math differs per card brand, but. Rule of thumb, if you have more than 1% of chargebacks to your transactions, so say you have 100 transactions this month, which is super low, but if you have more than one chargeback that month, you are considered having more than 1% chargebacks. So, I mean, it's significant, right? So if you continue to have over 1% chargebacks over a period of time, eventually they'll shut down your merchant account and you'll be on kind of a, uh, you'll be on what's called the match list, which other processors look at before providing you with credit card processing. So, I mean, it really can impact your business. As far as just kind of throwing their hands up and saying, 
eh, we're going to have fraud. Eh. I wouldn't say that I see that very often, but I definitely see complacency okay. with companies thinking that the one solution that they have in place is the only solution. And so if they still have significant fraud losses that they've done the best that they can or kind of the complacency in their process and and not continually trying to get better or improve or researching what else is out there or getting new layers based on the new fraud that they have or training their people. So that's more what I see is just, and I don't think it's intent, intentional complacency. I think a lot of it has to do with corporate culture and really how much the business prioritizes fraud too. And that's something that we can you know talk about another time. But <laughs> I think that most people in fraud don't really feel super appreciated. They aren't super well-funded. The budgets are tight. I moderated a panel last year at CMP called, you know, fighting fraud with duct tape and bailing wire. And you'd be surprised at some of the big brands that really don't put a lot of money behind fraud fighting. And so that's something I love to do is figure out ways to fight fraud on a budget and um, being really creative. I, I think outside the box and I'm a problem solver. And I'm very lucky to know how hundreds of co other companies are dealing with their fraud. So I can kind of go in and go, oh, have you thought about this or this or this? But I think that that's something I really see more than anything is just complacency and thinking like, oh, this this one tool I'm using is the best that there is and I don't need to look elsewhere or I don't need to do proof of concepts with something else or I don't need to change up my processes or do an evaluation of, of what we're doing to see if we can improve any better. Right. So so leaning on to that, and it was something you said that made me, uh, made me ask, question this, but so, so the complacency, if they sign on for a company that that initially starts out doing a really good job with anti-fraud and then later on it just kind of you know they never innovate on the product whatsoever how many how many people tend to just stay with that company i would say a lot i mean and i i hesitate because i don't want to make anyone mad with any company but i do have a very unique position of observing this industry from a ten thousand foot view and an outside but also inside perspective and a lot of people tell me you know which provider they use and what their rates are and all that stuff so i'm it's an informed observation that i'm about to share i think a lot do stay with them because they think that you know at one time this was a big brand or or they really have helped us, or maybe they didn't have a fraud provider before, and so something's better than nothing, and they trust them. And I think it's really important to trust your providers. And I'm certainly not saying that everybody needs to leave, but I think if you're not doing an audit and an evaluation of other technology that's out there at least every two years, you're doing your company a disservice. Right. And maybe you find out that the tool you're using is the right one. And if I were the service provider, I would want you to do that to make sure that you were you know, with the right company for your business. I do see in this market that there is so much money in fraud prevention that a lot of companies are being acquired and some have kind of stopped innovating once they're acquired. Not all of them, but some. But I also think it's not just on the fraud provider. I think that merchant, just like you were talking about earlier, the fraud that's hitting merchants is going to change too. And so, you know, one solution might've worked for you for the type of fraud that you had two years ago. But you can't always fight today's fraud with yesterday's tools. And if they're not innovating or if or if you're starting to see your fraud spike, maybe it's not replacing the core tool that you're using. Maybe it's adding layers of other um, services on top. And there's a lot of providers that are doing partnerships with each other so that you can do that very easily with implementation. And it's not a whole new API or huge software implementation. But I definitely encourage merchants to not 
settle. And I think too, we get stuck with, you know, really good personal relationships with companies and we don't want to rock the boat, but that's their, you know, that's their job. And ultimately if they're not fighting fraud as much as another company, I think that merchants need to be better at learning what else is out there and uh, how it can help their business. And I, I say that as I'm very vendor agnostic. So I, while I have done some work for a select number of service providers in the industry, it's very separate from my consultancy and from working with CNP. And I am very big on not taking referral fees, which is something that a lot of consultants in the space do when I'm in a paid consulting relationship, because I just feel like that is conflict of interest. And unfortunately, a lot of them, a lot of people do that. And there's a lot of things that could be made, but I just feel like, I can say these types of things without feeling like I, I have an obligation to a specific service provider because I want merchants and just people in general to trust any advice that I might give them and, and not think that it's because I'm getting a paycheck on the back end. No, I, I certainly have my favorites, but they. I will also say that with my favorites come you know, scrutiny and I constantly am like, you know, asking questions and all that, but also the ones that I really like and think that are good aren't going to be good for everyone. So it's definitely varies for everyone. All right. <laughs> yeah, that was- <laughs> <laughs> This is much longer than we expected, but I, it doesn't surprise me. Brett and I both know how to talk. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, I learned uh, that that's the thing you say you learn from me all the time and I learned something new from you every, every single time we talk as well. I mean, that's just uh you know, it's a lot of thought to process coming from my background of, of just committing fraud, but to understand what the merchants have to go through and the problems that they have. I mean, that's, that's really something it really is. Well, and I think it's funny, like we've joked a lot offline and also a little bit on this too, that, you know, there's different verbiage on each side too. You know, when you were at CNP, it was like, you were talking about this and this, and I'm starting to see blank faces. Like, what are you talking about? And so I have to go in and go, oh, his term for this is actually our term for that. Because we're not, our industries or your former industry and my current industry are not succinct with each other. They're, they don't play, you know, they don't consult each other with terms. That is true. Um, that is or true. glossary glossary of terms or things like that. So, you know, and we also don't consult each other with, I, I think that there's a fair bit of, People on the good side wanting to learn from the bad side and people from the bad side really wanting to learn what tools are out there on the good side so they can circumvent them. But there's not the same level of understanding of what the other person has to go through or what they are going through to tackle their job. Right. And that's what I think our hope from this podcast is really, right? Bringing new perspective to a common pain point. All right, so we covered a lot, and hopefully you guys aren't listening to this podcast at bedtime. <laughs> I know my husband listens to some podcasts to put him to sleep, so I'm hoping that that's not the case. But people, you know, I know a lot of people have asked us about this, and uh, we really just, we, as I think you can probably tell, Brett and I could talk for hours about oh, this geez. stuff. And we, <laughs> we do, actually, on our conversations on our phone. We literally have to block out time to talk because we know we both learn from each other and we hope that you guys have learned from us as well. We are going to wrap this up on this episode next, the next week we're going to be diving into more fraud types that are specific to verticals. We'll 
touch on ATO. We'll touch on a few things. We'll kind of do popcorn round and then we'll dive into some specific fraud methods uh, in the following episode. Again, we really want to hear from you guys, whether it's through a comment or a review on iTunes, through emailing us, contacting us on LinkedIn. You can find me, K-A-R-I-S-S-E, Hendrick, H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K on LinkedIn. And Brett, where can people find you? I'm under LinkedIn under Gollum Fun, G-O-L-L-U-M-F-U-N, or you can visit my website at anglerfish.com, A-N-G-L-E-R-P-H-I-S-H.com. And I also have Chargelytics Consulting. Honestly, if you Googled either of our names, you'll find us. Um, we also have a website for this podcast at theonlinefrogcast.com. Outstanding. Carice, it's been a great show once again. You too, Brett. I always enjoy talking to you and catch you soon. We'll do this again very soon. Bye, guys. Have a great day. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.